morning and ha- uh, good afternoon and happy Sabbath. Um, it's good to see you all. Uh, I hope you've had a good week. Uh, this week has been a very busy one for uh, the Kim family as we get ready to head overseas. Uh, we have eight days left before we board the plane and fly to the U.S. And, uh, you know, there were moments where we had to wait for passports to arrive. There were moments where we had to make sure that all of our vaccinations were all uh, properly uh, done and that we had paperwork. And anyway, we're getting there. We're going to hop on the plane and go see our families. We're very, very excited. Um, that also means that things tend to pile up over the last over the last two weeks prior to departure, but uh, we're getting there, so um, we're we're excited about that. <laughs> um, we want to welcome those of you who are visiting us today. Uh, we know we have some family members who are joining us, so welcome, and we have some new visitors as well from uh, from New Zealand. Uh, for those of you who are joining us online, we want to welcome you as well. So today we're going to do things a little bit more old-fashioned. I'm going to invite you to pull out your phones. And we're going to be looking up the texts through Scripture directly. And so if you have your phones, I'm just going to invite you to pull them out. And uh, we'll be looking at Scripture together. So Jinha and I, we're going to be starting a new series entitled Exploring God's Mission. Exploring God's Mission. And uh, as you can tell today, we're going to be exploring God's mission through nature or through creation. Um, We're going to be examining the themes of uh, God's mission through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. I think there are many reasons why people read the Bible. And the purpose of this series is to introduce the Bible primarily uh, as a book of God's mission to humanity. And we want to, basically, Jinha and I want to show you through Scripture that there's a broad definition to the word mission. Often I think we think of uh, the idea of salvation when we think of mission. Oftentimes we think that there's a, re- a relationship that is described in Scripture primarily as a vertical personal experience. And this is true. Uh, salvation is a personal vertical experience. But in this series, we also want to explore the horizontal nature of God's mission. We want to talk about how we're called to relate to one another, how God uh, calls us to relate to the community outside of the church. And we also want to explore how God calls us to relate to the earth as well. We, It's our prayer that in reading and applying scripture uh, from this perspective, and as we go through this series, that some aspect of God's mission will resonate with you, and you can sense the Spirit of God leading and guiding you. Um, so this weekend, we're going to look at crea- the creation account and look at how creation teaches us valuable lessons of God's mission. I'm just going to invite you to join me for one more word of prayer as we begin. Father God, as we open up scripture and as we explore what it means to know your will, to understand your character through that which you've created, I just want to pray that you would speak to our hearts and teach us um, teach us of you and teach us to respond to your word and to explore a deeper understanding or experience a deeper understanding of you as we respond to your call. We pray this in your name. Amen. So we're going to begin in the book of Genesis, which appropriately means beginning. Genesis begins with God, but it doesn't give us a description of him. He doesn't really introduce himself, tell us of his characteristics, but rather as we learn about what God does and what he says, we can learn about what he is like. And his interaction in and with creation 
reveals his character. So in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, I'm going to invite you to turn there. Romans chapter 1, verse 20, Paul writes something that's very significant. In Romans chapter 1, verse 20, Paul writes, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. So Paul writes that the invisible qualities are knowable by looking at creation. So in creation, we see complexity and harmony. We see beauty and interdependence. And we are called to worship God as a response to contemplating his work in creation. So in Revelation chapter 4, verse 11, uh, John the Revelator writes, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. There are several ways of approaching Genesis as a text. We can look at how God created humanity to take care of the earth. There are a lot of insights uh, provided by eco-theologians and how we as Christians have a responsibility to be good stewards of God's creation. And we'll definitely explore this later on in the series. We can also look at how God's character is seen in specific examples of creation. But today I want to spend some time first looking at how not to use creation. Then I'll share a few observations about God through actual creation. So first let's talk about how not to use creation. When Moses wrote Genesis, Israel was going through the Exodus. They were exiting Egypt, they were navigating the wilderness, and Moses writes the creation account, and he is quite familiar with Egyptian and Mesopotamian views of creation, and it's with this knowledge that he writes the Genesis account. I, ten- I attended a creation conference uh, a number of years ago, and Jacques Ducan, who is an Old Testament scholar, uh, makes a valuable observation that when you ex- inspect the words used throughout the creation, you see the omission of basic vocabulary. So in Genesis chapter 3, uh, excuse me, Genesis chapter 1, verses 3 to 5, if you have your Bibles, I'm going to invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 1, verses 3 to 5, as we're going to be coming back to this text throughout the, throughout the talk. So in Genesis chapter 1, verses 3 to 5, the text introduces the first day of creation, and the author writes, And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. God saw the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Dukan makes this observation, or he asks the question, why doesn't Moses call the light sun? This trend continues on. If you look at verses 14 to 16, it says, And God said, Let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years. And let them be lights in the vault of the light to, uh, the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. So Moses calls the sun the greater light. 
But there's a Hebrew word for sun. It's shemesh. But Moses doesn't want to use it. Why not? So Dukan says that Moses does this because the surrounding nations worshipped the sun. And when Moses writes about creation, he intentionally lowers the value of the sun by simply calling it light. It's like Moses' way of throwing shade at the, all the other nations around that worship the sun. So in contrast to the Egyptian and Mesopotamian gods, the Hebrew god Yahweh is so powerful, this is the god that created the gods that the other nations worship. Moses does this over and over throughout Genesis chapter 1. God is presented as a power that is greater than all of creation. There are many ways in which we can apply scripture. We can use scripture to combat any number of worldviews that are that don't match our own. And in this case, creation is used to show God's dominance over the surrounding gods specifically. Creation also reveals how we can encounter God's power, which is through his word, and we'll explore this in a moment. But this leads me to explore a way in which Christianity often uses creation, and that is to combat evolution. Now, take what I say here with a grain of salt. You don't have to agree with me, but I'm just I'm sharing my opinion with you. Something to note is that evolution didn't exist during the time of Moses. It wasn't on Moses' radar. While a six-day creation account certainly does fly in the face of evolution, listening to Dukan's presentation made me think that we use creation as a replacement for evolution. But I don't think we need to. And bear with me. I know what it sounds like I'm about to say. Just be patient with me. The creation account wasn't made to combat evolution. Evolution was invented to combat creation. So then the burden of proof, it's not on us to show how creation is superior, I think it's better to have evolutionists prove their points rather than me having to prove creation. The burden of proof, in my opinion, is on the opposition side. Sometimes my kids get screen time. They get the iPad, they sit in front, they sit in front of it, they get to watch their favorite shows, they get to play their favorite video games. I know that if they have prolonged extended periods of time Looking at the screen, it's not healthy for them. But if I then go to my kids and say, you know what, that screen's not healthy for you, here's the Bible, come read this. They're just not going to accept it. They're not going to say, oh, thank you, this is really what I wanted. And yet, we take the same approach with people who don't agree with with, with creation. It's like, oh, you believe in evolution? Here's a different account, as if that's going to convince them. I think it's better for me to sit down with my kids to share with them, I know you're really upset with me because I'm taking away the iPad. But this is what happens if you keep watching over and over and over again. There are times where my kids watch for an hour at a time, and afterwards they're grumpy, and I'll ask them, did did screen time make you happier or did it make you more angry? And they're like, made me more grumpy. I was like, all right, so are you mad at me because I'm taking it away? They're like, yes, I'm still mad at you. But having these conversations, every now and then my kids are like, you know what? I know this isn't good for me, so I understand. All right, here's the iPad. Every now and then it happens. So then having these discussions around the value of the iPad makes a difference. I think especially when discussing evolution, it's more worth it to explore where faith and evolution overlap. 
Did you know that the Big Bang Theory was developed by a priest? His name was Georges Lemaitre. I don't know if I read his last name correctly. We'll call him Georges. He served as a priest for a number of years and was theologically trained. He also pursued mathematics. He was a theoretical physicist, astronomer, and a professor of physics. He was also the first to observe that the universe was expanding. Shortly thereafter, Edwin Hubble confirmed the theory. So George's theory stated that if the universe is expanding, there must be a beginning, perhaps a Big Bang. Now, George had a contemporary by the name of Einstein. Einstein hated this theory of an expanding universe. He wanted to believe that the universe was stationary. Because if the universe is stationary, it just always was. But if the universe had a beginning and it expanded, that means there had to be a beginning. But the question is, how did it start? Einstein didn't have an answer for that. And so this idea of the Big Bang or the idea of an expanding universe, excuse me, bothered him. Now, I'm not sharing this because I believe in the Big Bang. Um, I, I, I subscribe to the biblical account of creation. I'm sharing this because I'm not sure most people who believe in the Big Bang Theory know that it was thought up by someone who believed in God. If someone says, I don't believe in God, I believe in uh, the Big Bang Theory, I believe in an expanding universe, the follow-up question is, did you know the person that invented that was a Christian? I wonder how many people know that. So Genesis, once again, is not a response to evolution. It is a response to deities surrounding Israel at the time of the Exodus. And creation does teach us about God. So here are a couple lessons that I want to go through, or a few observations um, as I've reflected on creation. There's a scholar by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and he says, Only through Jesus, the Word made flesh, will we be able to comprehend the mystery of God's creative activity, as well as the goal and ultimate meaning of creation itself. It's an interesting statement here. He says, you have to understand Jesus to really pull meaning out of creation. When I think about this, creation then should serve as a metaphor that more deeply allows me to understand salvation, to understand Christ. If you read through the first three verses of Genesis, it describes the earth as without form. It's void, it's dark, and along the face of the deep, the Spirit of God is hovering over the waters. And then enters God, who speaks, let there be light. The primary focus of God's work in Genesis is the creation of life. And everything that God does in the first two chapters of Genesis is made to sustain life. How does God do this? He does it by speaking. I love this metaphor because there are moments when I feel darkness. You know, the Hebrew word for formless, it can mean empty. It can mean vanity. It can mean a place of chaos. We can experience this in our lives. And the metaphor that creation provides is that God wants to be a creator in our lives. He wants us, he wants to give us direction. 
He wants to give us purpose. He wants us to experience life and love. The genesis of this experience is in God's word. The same power that created the world has the power to create something new in our lives. Where there is nothing, God can create something. If God wants to fill the emptiness, he wants to organize the chaos. Where there is darkness, God wants to bring light. In John chapter 1, the disciple John writes about Jesus and he introduces him as the word. He introduces Jesus as the light that lights humanity. When we discover life, or excuse me, we can discover life as we lean into God's word and discover what it means to experience Christ. When I was 18, I was in debt and in the US finan- uh, excuse me, US financial institutions, as soon as you turn 18, they send you a letter in the mail. It's a pre-approved credit card. And all you have to do is dial the number and say, "Yes, I accept." By the time I was 19, my credit limit for one card was $12,000. Now, to put that into context, not too long ago, my credit was $3,500 here with Westpac. And the reality was I was spending more than $3,500 a month, and I just I needed a higher credit limit. So I call Westpac, and you know we pay our credit cards at the end of each billing cycle faithfully every single month. So I call the bank, and I ask them, can I get more credit? Westpac says, we have to check your credit score. We have to check all of your bank statements. Please contact your employer and have them send us your salary package. And so I go through this, call them again. Wait, you know, they're like, let us figure this out. Okay, we'll extend your credit limit to $5,500. Like, wow, so generous. Here I am, almost 40. I was like, so you won't give credit to people who are responsible. But anyway, I said, anyway. So I was 18, heading nowhere at the speed of light. I was in debt. I had no direction, and I felt deep emptiness and loneliness. And that led me to seek God. God, I feel like what Genesis is writing in the beginning. I feel darkness. I feel emptiness. So I was sitting in my room after a weekend of hanging out with my friends, and I wondered, what would happen if I gave my all to Jesus? What would life look like? And so I did. I said, God, Whatever it is to the best of my ability that I can do, I'm going to give to you. And just to fast forward, 10 years later, I was here in Melbourne working as a pastor at the Melbourne City Adventist Church. And my point is simply to say that God has the power to create something out of nothing. So if you feel chaos in your life, if you feel emptiness and darkness, When the vanity that this world promises falls short, I encourage you to look to the creative life that is found in God. Draw near to the word of God. Draw near to Jesus Christ. And as you live out God's word, you will sense the creative power of God and the Holy Spirit leading in your life. He will give you assurance and guidance, and the Spirit will bring restoration and healing to you and make you a new creation. I do want to say change is not immediate, it's not easy, but be patient and persistent. You will see change.
Job's conception of God was formed after being confronted by the marvels of God's creative work while in the midst of his pain. And if you read through Job chapter 38 verses 1 to 4, Job speaks, excuse me, God speaks out to Job and says, Who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. And over the next few chapters, Job contemplates creation. And he responds to God in chapter 42, which is the last chapter of the book of Job. You said, listen now and I will speak. I will question you and you shall answer me. My ears have heard of you and now my eyes have seen you. And Job experiences God as he contemplates the power of creation, the power of God through creation, and it is there that he submits to God. So creation teaches us of God's salvation. The second thing that I want to observe through creation is are, are a couple lessons that are found in the Sabbath. If you turn to Exodus chapter 20, Exodus chapter 20, and we're going to read verses 8 to 11. Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 to 11. So the creation account tells us that God creates for six days, and on the seventh day, he rests. And here in this rest, God institutes something called the Sabbath. And Genesis chapter 20, verses 8 to 11 and I'm just going to read verses 8 and 9. God tells Moses, remember, or excuse me, command to Israel, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. So here there are a couple uh, things to observe. One is God's command to work. Embedded in this command to rest, God actually tells Israel, the importance of work. In John chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus says, My father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. So when God creates and he redeems, there's this dynamic, continuing work. And God values work. And this counters a static view of human existence where we tolerate stagnation and there's no concern for growth and development. So here in the Sabbath command, God values work. But in contrast to that, God values rest. Lynn Babb writes, only in stopping, really stopping, do we teach our hearts and souls that we are loved apart from what we do. The Sabbath teaches us that our identity and value is found in something other than what we accomplish. In other words, we have value because we are God's creation, because we were created for communion with God. We're designed with purpose. When we come to this place of worship and we come to rest as children of God, we have value regardless of our salary or the nature of our employment. So whenever we step into the Sabbath, we are reminded that we have value. And the reality is that this creates a new perspective of how we build meaning from our work. The Sabbath communicates that we have value aside from our accomplishments. When our identities are wrapped in our accomplishments, work has a tendency of feeling like work. 
our motivation in work becomes results-based. And I don't know if you've experienced this, but it can be frustrating when you put hard work into what you do and you expect an outcome, and instead of getting a return, you get nothing. When our identities are wrapped in our accomplishments, it also leads to entitlement. I am, therefore I deserve. Now, I think fair work policy is very important. You deserve a fair wage for your work. You deserve a safe environment uh, to work in where you shouldn't be exposed to bullying or harassment. You deserve equal opportunity. The entitlement that I'm referring to is when people feel like they have a right to something that they don't actually have. In other words, I'm a government official. I have power and influence. Therefore, I should be able to treat people however I want. I can touch people inappropriately, and it's fine. I have done more than you. Therefore, you are beneath me. In the creation week, we have the Sabbath, which presents a different reality. It teaches us to cultivate work not as work, but to look at work as service. It teaches us to serve others, regardless of status, regardless of the outcome, regardless of what is returned. When someone adopts the heart of service, they ask, what else can I do? This Friday, as, uh, as was mentioned uh, by Naomi, we were at the Victoria Markets uh, passing things out to the homeless, and Channel 9 came out with a news crew, and they kind of filmed what was going on. And as the ADRA team here at Melbourne City Adventist Church, as we were discussing preparations for Friday, um, there was a long list of things to do. And Kay, who isn't here today, uh, he recently got baptized, Kay said, hey, Pastor Roy, I'd like to do everything from here to here on the list. I said, okay, it's a lot of stuff. Like you're you're going to be running around Kmart, and you've got a very, very long list of things to, 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 to get. But he went and did it. And uh, he calls me on Friday, and he says, hey, Pastor Roy, uh, this Kmart didn't have this particular item. So I went to another Kmart and checked to see if they had the item. And then basically, Kay ran around all around town to make sure that everything was purchased. And and as as he was hanging up the phone, he said, hey, Thank you for letting me do this. Now, when I, when I look at a list of things to do, it feels like a burden. And here was someone who actually took a significant amount of time out of his day and said, thank you for taking my time. And I just kind of thought, why would you say thank you? <laughs> I, I just told him, Kay, thank you. Why are you thanking me? And as I reflected, it dawned on me that Kay found the blessing of service. For him, he's like, this gives, me a, this gives me a chance to be a blessing to somebody else. I feel purpose. And, and, and I feel this sense of like, I've done something that was meaningful. And for him, that was an opportunity. It was a blessing. Now, of course, there's also a reward in that Channel 9 came out and they filmed all the Victoria Market. So who knows? Maybe K will pop up on Channel 9 News or I think on Channel 7 as well. They're doing like this thing on Wednesday where they're showcasing what's happening at the big markets. Maybe he'll pop up on TV and become famous. I don't know. There are rewards to doing good. But what happens if we adopt this paradigm of looking at work as service? Do you find it difficult to see work as enjoyable or as a privilege? I'll be honest. There are many times where I do. 
I invite you to rest deeply in the Sabbath. As you discover your intrinsic value, may you find a new motivation for your work. Creation also teaches us the egalitarian, uh, excuse me, the egalitarian nature of God or the equal nature of God in how he sees humanity. If you go back to Genesis chapter 1, and we'll end on this point. Genesis chapter 1. And we're looking at verse 26. When God speaks of humanity, man and woman, the text says, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea. And he continues on. So in verse 27, So God created him in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. God takes both man and woman and combines them and seeing them together as a whole is what shows what the image of God should look like. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 20, uh, in reference to Eve, God says Eve is to be Adam's helper. Now, that phrase helper doesn't mean that Eve is subject to Adam. The word helper is used elsewhere. Um, there are times where God is Israel's help and shield in a time of trouble, in 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12, and in Psalm 33, verse 20. It describes, this, this phrase helper, it describes a relationship of mutual interdependence rather than the woman existing for the man's convenience or as his underling. Even if you look at Adventist literature, in Testimonies of the Church, Volume 3, Ellen White observes or writes, When God created Eve, he designed that she should possess neither inferiority nor superiority to the man, but that in all things she should be his equal. Of course we know the story after the fall in Genesis chapter 3, verse 16, that God communicates to the woman, Your desire will be to your husband, and he will rule over you. Now, if you've grown up in Christian circles, or if you're familiar with uh, this idea of male headship, you would have heard heard these texts in regards to hierarchy repeated. And I want to just review one of the most famous passages. It's in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 to 23. So if you go to the New Testament and you look at Ephesians chapter 5, and we look at verses 21 to 23, Actually, I'm going to start us in 22, and then we'll go back to 21. So here's that famous passage, verse 22. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. And there it is. It's like, ah, that means in a relationship, the woman should listen to the man. But if you go backwards, just one verse, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, it says, submitting to one another in the fear of God. So yes, wives are submitting are supposed to submit to their husbands, but husbands are also supposed to submit to their wives. The text continues, verse 24 and 25, Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Verse 25, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. That phrase, gave himself for her, means he died for her. 
So once again, yes, wives, submit to your husbands, and then husbands, you should be willing to die for your wives. Now what does that mean? If you look at the direction given to the wives, it's very specific. Do everything that he wants. But then when Paul talks about the husband's responsibility, it's kind of metaphorical. Just as Christ did this, you should do it too. He's not as specific. But if I were to interpret this, I would just say, husbands, if you want your wives to do what you want, all you got to do is die for her. Paul is talking about mutual submission. Even when you inspect the Sabbath commandment, we were in Exodus chapter 20. I'll invite you to go back there. Exodus chapter 20. And we're going to read the remainder of the text. Starting in verse 10. So it says, But the Sabbath is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter or male servant or female servant nor your animals or any foreigner residing in your towns. Or another translation would say in your gates, in your home. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Now what's interesting here is that when the author writes the fourth commandment, he goes into detail about who the man is supposed to enforce the Sabbath keeping to. He has to make sure the children, the servants, the animals, and the strangers observe the Sabbath. But in this specific and exhaustive list of people that the man is in charge of, there is one person missing. That's the wife. The husband, even in the Old Testament, in the very Ten Commandments, does not get to enforce Sabbath-keeping on his wife because she's his equal. In Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 22, God gives this picture of what Israel restored would look like when the promise of a redemption occurs. So if we look at Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 22. Jeremiah chapter 31 and verse 22. Here's what the text says. How long will you wander, unfaithful daughter of Israel? The Lord will create a new thing on earth, the woman will surround the man. In other words, when salvation is fully experienced, it elevates woman. And it does away with gender inequality. It says here that the woman will be the house band or the husband. The translation should read, the woman will be the protector of the man. And this is why in Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 to 28, it says, So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, nor slave or free, nor is there male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. So as we reflect upon creation, it teaches us, what goes on in the heart of God. And as you take to heart these few lessons, I hope that you're able to learn something new of the character of God and may it guide guide you and allow you to connect with him in a more meaningful way. Would you join me as we pray and as we close? Father God, as we've reflected on creation, 
and your mighty work. May we come to know your heart. May it influence how we interact with you personally, how we interact with each other uh, horizontally, and may it allow us to effectively live out your mission in our lives. We pray these things in your name. Amen.